Y'all feel good today? Praise God. Man, I'm excited. I'm excited. This is a new day. This is a great day. Um, I just want to bring to your attention, as always, um, in the seat backs in front of you, for those of you in the front row, I apologize, you know, Adrian, my... Every, everybody up here, it's not going to work for you. But in the seat back in front of you, you will see some envelopes. There's tithes. Um, but specifically, there's a card in there that says, hey, you should be able to see it at the top. That's a connect card. If you're new with us this morning, we would love for you to grab that card and we would love for you to just fill out as much information as you're comfortable. Uh, we're not going to bother you with constant emails and everything. We just want to be able to let you know of anything that we think you need to know moving forward in our church to connect with you, to make sure that we can love you and share Christ with you. Um, but then also, we also in that have a place for you to write comments or prayer requests. So if you are here today um, and you're a part of our church and you're like, I don't need to fill out a card, grab that if you have a a specific need that you want us to know about, and we will be sure to pray about that on your behalf. So those are the seat backs in front of you. Now this morning, I'm excited because we are concluding our sermon series through the book of Nehemiah. And today, we have got to broadly go through a number of chapters, and specifically, we're going to be in chapters 8 to 10, even though the entirety of the book of Nehemiah goes beyond that. So I would encourage you on your own time after today's service, go back, reread chapter 8 to the very end of the book, but for today's purpose, we're going to be focusing on Nehemiah's chapters 8, 9, and 10. Now, just to quickly recap for us this journey that we've gone through through the book of Nehemiah, We've gone through understanding how Nehemiah was called by God within the foreign king's court of Persia, specifically to go back to the city of Jerusalem because the people were facing such oppression. See, the Israelites had been allowed to go back to rebuild the temple of God, which was for the express purpose of being able to worship God in accordance with his word. And so they were free to do that, and they went back, and a number of years went by, roughly 60, but then things came to a stop. And Nehemiah, now all these years later, years later, hears about what's going on in the city of his people back in Jerusalem, and he hears that they are in great distress, and their enemies are all around them and trying to bring them down. And so Nehemiah intercedes, calls to the Lord, steps out in faith, and receives provision and permission from the king of Persia to go back and to start rebuilding the wall. Because listen to me, what we've been saying over the last five weeks, and we're going to culminate with today, is that the wall represents preservation. Everybody say preservation. The wall represented preservation of holiness. Because it's interesting how we can find ourselves in a spot of worshiping God, but if we have not put up safeguards in our lives, inevitably when the attacks of the enemy come against us, listen, inevitably when the attacks of the enemy come against us, we need to ensure that we've done everything possible to set up a safeguard around us. And that's what we've been learning week after week, how the Israelites, through the leadership of Nehemiah, under the sovereignty of God, rebuilt this wall. And today, we're picking up right where we left off last week, and that was the wall was finished. They finished it in in an unbelievable amount of time. They finished it, but now the work's not finished because the final step to this entire rebuilding process, you ready for it? This is week five. It's revival. Revival. Let's talk about revival this morning as we get into the word. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your people. I thank you for all that you have started to do in this place. And Lord, I thank you in advance for what you are continuing to do in the lives of your people. I pray that we would not leave here unchanged by the power of your word today, that we would be effectual doers of it and not just hearers. So, Lord, I thank you and I praise you. And in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So let me ask you this first question because I need you to understand what revival is, and that's simply that. What is revival? Well, let me give you my definition based on how I see revival take place throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. Here's the definition that I have for you. Revival is this, the need for God to resurrect 
what sin has killed. See, that's interesting. Because a lot of times if you've grown up in the church realm, like I have, you hear the word revival and you think, man, we just need a move of the Spirit of God. Which is true. But it is incredibly necessary to recognize the need for the move of the Spirit of God. And that need, that why, is mentioned in the definition. Because sin has killed something. Sin has deliberately come against something good and sanctified and holy. And something that was meant to be preserved. So, let's talk about the fact that sin kills certain things, which is why we need a revival. So let, let's just broadly think about what, what does sin kill in my life? Pastor, why does this matter that you're talking about revival? Why does it matter for me to know that sin kills? I don't even really care about sin. I'm not even necessarily fully a believer. I don't even care about God. So why does sin even matter for me? Well, let, let, let me just broadly give you some examples. Here's what sin kills. Number one, the love we ought to have for one another. Because sin allows your mind to become jaded toward how you are meant to view a son or a daughter created in the image of God. And that son or daughter who have been stained by sin as all have for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet God so loved the world that in spite of their sin, while they were still sinners... He demonstrated his love for us in this way, that Christ died for us. He sent his son to die for us. So if God views us as sin-stained individuals, and yet in spite of that loves us, but we don't view each other in that same manner, with that same form of compassion, sin has messed something up. All right, that, that's, just, that's just one. And that could be with your marriage. That could be with your relationships with your friends, with your siblings. You name it. I got some parents in here or some kids in here that hate their parents or vice versa, some parents that aren't too fond of their kids. All right, you let that one settle. I'm not going to say anything else. Sin kills, listen to me, a proper view of our own self-image. We live in a society where it has been dictated to us what is beautiful, what is right, what what ought to be, by, I'm just going to say it, please forgive me, but I'm calling it by demonic forces. All right? And sin has entered into the mind of every individual, and the enemy is using it to twist our self-image once again as created in the image of God. For you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. But sin says, no, you're not good enough. You're not beautiful enough. You're not righteous enough. Let that settle. What else does sin kill? A healthy pattern of living life to the fullest. I mean, think about it. When when life gets us, and I mean really gets us and puts us in that in that submissive position where we feel like there is no hope left, we start running to vices. We start running to patterns that we think are going to give us a sense of peace and fulfillment and self-adequacy. But the problem is those vices have now taken the place of where God is meant to reside in our lives. And now what was meant to be good and enjoyable as created as a part of God's creation has become a sinful addiction that is now destroying the very body that the Lord has given us. I'm talking physically I'm talking physically substance abuse gluttony we we can go down the list self-harm all these things sin kills your proper view of yourself as God created you sobriety human life yep sin has taught us to take for granted the sanctity of human life and how beautiful it is And how in spite of the circumstances, all life ought to be valued. There's so much more that we can go down the the road of, of talking about what does sin kill. But I think we kind of have a little bit of a broad picture right now to understand sin's not good. And sin messes us up, right? So revival, if it is the need for God to resurrect what sin has killed, then 
let, let me just, let me say for us as a church then, ask the question, why do we need revival? And I'm, t- I'm talking about us corporately as a body. Because here's the deal. All of us can use revival. Individually, all of us can. I can. All of us can. Listen, I'm not perfect. Nobody here is perfect. I don't care how long and how great and how dedicated you are to serving the Lord. You're not perfect. That's the point of the perpetual covering of the blood of Christ as his eternal interceder on our behalf. So you're not going to be perfect. We're called to strive, but not to be perfect. We're called to obedience, but not perfection. Only Jesus is. So why do we need revival as a church? I'm going to be straight up with you. This section really isn't necessarily chastising the Israelites. Later on in chapters 12 and 13, he does, but you can read that on your own time. But for us, when we talk about revival today, I need you to understand that I'm really hard-pressed to find a need for us to say, we need it. Wow, we are so unrighteous and so bad and so dead in this area. You ought to know how to worship. No, that's not true. We worship in this house. You all don't know how to live for the Lord. I see people living for the Lord in spite of all of the difficulties that are going on. So honestly, I am hard-pressed, and that's something to praise God for. I am so grateful that there is health and there is life in this church. But that being said, I do believe that there is at least one area that we can continue to do better in. And it's a broad category. It's not a specific category. But simply for us as a church, I believe that we need revival in the exercise of our spiritual gifts. Okay? And again, I don't, I don't want you to think that I'm just talking about the charismata and, and prophecy and gifts of healing. Absolutely, we want that. But it's holistic. It's more than that. There's the gift of service, the gift of healing, the gift of administration that we see in Scripture. The, I mean, there... It's so prevalent in Scripture how God has gifted his people, and I don't believe that the Spirit of God has taken a break or has walked away from this church. Scripture talks about how we as the people of God can stifle the Spirit, how we as the people of God can quench the Spirit. I don't believe we're there. I believe the Spirit of God is knocking at the door right now, saying, I want to work through you in ways that you have never imagined possible. And so for us as a church, I just want us to be aware of that. For you individually, I know that today there's going to be a a part of the word of God that might speak to you individually, and I want you to listen to that. And I want you to hear that, but also for us as a body together, I want us to understand the necessity for us to recognize we need revival in our lives so that we can serve God to the fullest of our abilities as he has gifted us to. Okay, so that's why. How? And that's what we're going to really talk about today. We said what revival is. We talked about why we need revival. And now finally, as a church, I want us to ask ourselves this question. How can I experience revival today? Because that's the question that we all care about, really. How? How can I have this happen in my life? So let's talk about that today. And as we do, in the conclusion of this Legacy Legacy Builder series, we're going to see how the book of Nehemiah shows us specifically the road to revival. And here it is. It's found in three specific characteristics. You ready? Here it is. Number one, recognition. Number two, repentance. And number three, rhythm. It's really simple. And I'm going to break it down for you. In order for us to walk the road of revival for the needs that we know we have for the Lord, we need to understand recognition, repentance, and rhythm. So let's talk about the first one. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 9 says this. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. So first we need to stop and we need to recognize right here the wall had been finished and now there was a call for celebration. Kind of like what we're doing today. But it's interesting how the people specifically heard the preaching of the law of Moses. They heard the reading, the dictation of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible that comprised the entirety of their sacrificial worship to the Lord. And as they're hearing it on this day of celebration, they weep. Why? 
And Nehemiah even says, stop. Today is a day of celebration. And so listen, today I'm going to talk a lot about repentance, which is all about a recognition of our wrongdoings and a turning away from them. But I don't want today to be a day of overwhelming, weighty condemnation because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want us to walk out of here in the joy of the Lord as our strength, knowing that in spite of, okay, coming to grips with the reality of our shortcomings and our faults and sins before God, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And we're going to talk about why that's so important. Go to verse 10. It says this, Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This is a great phrase to underline, this entire sentence right here. The day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. So here it is. The first step towards revival is to recognize God's ability to supersede your insufficiency. The first step towards revival is to recognize God's ability to supersede your insufficiency. Let's talk about that for a second. First of all, let, I use that word recognize, but I also want to I, I, I extrapolate and give you a synonym of it. Really, recognition of God's character is really understood as revelation. It's this idea that, God, I need you to reveal yourself to me and give us the recognition to be able to have a revelation of who you are. So we're really talking, it's recognition, but I'm going to use the word revelation a lot right here as well. So how is God revealed in such a way as we are able to recognize him? Number one, he does it through his word. I thank God literally for his written word that he inspired through his Holy Spirit through the lives of so many diverse individuals that he gave us a concrete, inerrant, infallible word that teaches us his character, his goodness, his mercy, his grace, his divine justice, his sovereignty. I thank God for that word. But that's just number one. Number two is he reveals himself through people, through his creation, through the experience of our interactions with it. And we can never allow one to supersede the other. Ultimately, here as a church, we look to the word of God as our word of truth for faith and conduct. We're always going to go to God's word. You are, and listen, I am a human and I am fallible, so I might not be 10 out of 10, but I would say 9 out of 10, I make sure to check my opinions at the door before I get up on the stage. Because you don't need to hear another individual's opinion. You get enough of that. At work, on social media, on the television, on news, you get enough of it. You don't need that. You need the word of God illuminated for you so that you can understand the nature and the character of God so that you can appropriately make life choices based on God's wisdom and his sovereignty. So you're going to get that. But then we also allow from that flow of looking to God's word for a revelation of him to also say, okay, God, now how can I experience you through interaction with your people? How can I experience you through an interaction with a relationship with another brother or sister in Christ? How can I experience you in the world that you created? So if God's revealed in those ways, I want you now to stop. And I want you to imagine for a moment that you are presented with the totality, the entirety of your insufficiencies. Think about them. I'm not here to depress you, but I do want you to think about them. I want you to think about your mistakes, past, present, things that maybe you're worried about making in the future. I want you to think about your addictions. I want you to think about your insecurities. I want you to think about all of the problems that you have and so on and so forth. I know we all got them. You're in good company. Okay, got them in your head? All right. You dwell on them. You think on them. But now... Maybe you have no concept of the character of God, which is ultimately the answer to your insufficiency. 
because you have nothing to walk in conjunction through the thinking and the heart of here's my problems, here's my insufficiency, and you're unable to outweigh that insufficiency with an understanding of the character and the nature of God. Therefore, listen to me, therefore, you have developed a premature conviction in your heart that is unable to handle the weight of your insufficiency. Let me break down to you what I'm saying for you right now. Conviction without revelation results in condemnation. You need to think about that, especially to all my believers in this room who are struggling day after day saying, God, I keep calling upon you to help me out of this lifestyle of sin. God, I keep calling upon you to deliver me from the problems that I face, from the insecurities. God, why is this so hard? You're not necessarily blaming God. You're just in such a place of despair because you're saying it's just not happening. I am just so worthless and broken. That is that is unbridled, that is illegitimate conviction that the enemy is trying to use against you because, listen, conviction without revelation is condemnation. Do you remember what Romans 8 says? There is now, therefore, no condemnation. For who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. But you can't miss that. The understanding of that is I am covered because of the work that Jesus has done for me. Not because of the constancy of my ability to either be righteous or the constancy of my inability to remain righteous. God is not going to be changed by either one of those. He simply wants us to recognize the entirety of our dependency that ought to be on him. So if we don't have that understanding, if we don't have that revelation and recognize that character of God and his person, it leads to condemnation. So let me just say it this way. Stop focusing on the problems and start focusing on the solution. Jesus is the solution. He is. That, that, that's all that I can give you. And that's all that you need. Jesus is the solution. And I think we have been so hardwired and so exponentially increased to focus our attention on the problems going on in our country right now. I'm not going to go, you know you want me to say it, and I'm not going to say it. You know what I'm thinking. There's just a lot going on in the country right now that just wants us to keep our eyes fixated on the problem. This is a day of rejoicing. This is a day of being glad because the joy of the Lord is our strength, not a day to grieve. All right, chapter 9. This is interesting because in Nehemiah chapter 9, we see a shift now to Nehemiah on behalf of the people, giving God this prayer of repentance. It's fascinating because... That first chapter and those verses that we read from chapter 8 kind of give us this idea of, now don't, don't repent, just, just rest in the joy of the Lord. But okay, we talked about the, under, the, the importance of a proper holistic recognition of having a, a holistic revelation of who God is. That's the first step. Now that we know who God is, he wants us to come to a place of proper repentance, which is ultimately the second point. The second step towards revival is repentance. So let, let's talk about repentance. Um, here in chapter 9, specifically, if you want to write this down, chapters six, uh, verses 6 through 37, we see in this entire section, through the prayer of repentance of Nehemiah, this declaration of the history of the people of Israel. And we see first that he starts praising God all the way back to Father Abraham, the very first of the Jewish, uh, the Jewish people, the patriarch himself. And he's praising God. He's saying, God, you didn't have to call him, but you called him and you led him to a land you provided for him. God, you, part, you delivered the Israelites from the slavery in Egypt. Lord, you parted the Red Sea so that your people were able to walk along on dry ground, but the enemies were succumbed to the forces of the water. God, you have been so faithful. And then he stops and says, but we, your people, we, 
We were unfaithful to you. And then he goes down that line of declaring the sins of the people, specifically towards God. But then he stops and says, but after we had received the necessary course correction, the pain of the punishment, now we were back on track and we were living for you and you were being faithful. You said you would not leave us or forsake us. You just needed to show us a little bit of tough love. But now, God, we're back on track with you and we thank you. And then it stops again. But we as the people were unfaithful once more. You keep seeing this pattern once again, over and over and over. And it's so interesting, the language that Nehemiah uses here, because he talks about how complacency set in, how this idea of, you know what, God, I don't need you anymore, or this unfavorable attitude towards the Lord. And really, ultimately, the comfort that is experienced in times of peace and tranquility and goodness that led the people of God to turn their back on God. And God says, okay, I'm calling out, I'm calling out, I'm calling out. You're killing my prophets that I'm using as a voice of reason to give you, get you back on track. You're killing the pastors. You're killing the people. You're silencing them. You're remaining stiff-necked. Stiff-necked here literally means like imagine a toddler when you're trying to pick them up and, and say, no, I don't want it. That's literally what it means there when you see the word stiff-necked in the original Hebrew language. So we're like a bunch of toddlers when we don't want to listen to God. Uh-uh, no, I don't want a God. But God just remains. He remains. So Nehemiah is giving this prayer of repentance. Now, let's break down repentance a little bit because it's important with where I'm going to go with it. I believe that repentance, based on the biblical example of it, it consists of two key steps. Number one is admission. And number two is adjustment. Admission. Think about confession or really confession of the truth, which is interesting because repentance therefore means that you need to be willing to admit the truth about your own faults to God. And you recognize who God is and the fact that he doesn't condemn you, but that he receives you. So, so the first part's admission. I, I, I don't think we get that part too wrong in the church. I don't. I think it's the second step that's so hard for us as human beings. Remember, you're in good company here. This is not a message of condemnation. It's just speaking the truth. We struggle with adjustment because really um, we need to understand that it is necessary to turn from sin and then to turn towards Jesus through this act of repentance. So we admit it. We look at God. Let's say God's here, all right? We look at God, and we admit it. But then we look back. Then maybe we look forward. Hold on. I'm not done here in this season of my life yet. I got a few more things I got to take care of. And you know he's there. And you know he's watching and you know he loves you and he's gracious and merciful. But you know that he's going to do whatever he can to get your attention. No matter what it takes because he does not want you to go down a path of no return. And so he's going to fiercely fight for you to make sure that you turn back towards him. Which is repentance itself. But we struggle with the act of adjustment. Because it requires serious life adjustments. It requires confession. It requires conversation. It requires admission of guilt, not just to God, but to others that we know we're living against. Husbands, wives, children. Let me talk to you a little bit more about repentance. Repentance takes place only, listen to me, only when we admit how good God has been in spite of our wickedness. Otherwise, it's not true repentance. If it's, Lord, I walk towards you and, and you're saying everything right, but in your heart of hearts, you're thinking like, I, see, I knew I got this. Yeah, I was able to get there. Sounds good, right? But the problem is, no, you weren't. Because at the flip of a switch, the first time you see that vice, you're going to turn back. I, I'm sorry, I, not that you're going to, but you are maybe going to turn back to that. How many of you know what I'm talking about? 
you wish and you pray and you say, God, I just want to be delivered of that, but you turn back. And here's the problem. When we focus so much on our own ability to overcome that when we do inevitably, unfortunately, slip up, no matter how minor or major it is, then our world comes crashing down because that's when we've become so self-obsessed with our own ability to supersede our problems. Then we develop in ourselves an unhealthy, sinful form of insecurity because ultimately it had to do with us and our own ability to overcome our problem when God says, I'm going to be with you through thick and thin. I'm going to walk with you and I'm going to wait for you when you fall or when you turn your head and I'm going to try to bring you back, but you need to walk hand in hand with me. God is leading the way. Repentance takes place only when we admit how good he's been to us in spite of our wickedness. And that's it. One of the greatest lies you could ever believe is that your failed attempts at holiness disqualify you from the love of God. I think that is one of the greatest weapons that the enemy has that I was talking with my wife about yesterday that I think we were just overwhelmed about in that moment, and we just basked in the beauty of it. We say it's because of the grace of Jesus Christ that you are saved, and there's nothing that you could do to earn it. He gives it free. I don't care what your past is. I don't care how far you've gone. I don't care if you're a murderer, if you're a drug dealer, if you're, if, if you're sexually immoral. I don't care what it is. It's sin, yep. But guess what? God loves you. And all he desires from you is to admit your need of him. So maybe we hear that and we say, yes, thank you, God. Maybe we've said the sinner's prayer and we're trying to adjust our life for him. But then we stumble, and then that's when that moment of insecurity overcomes us, and that self-condemnation takes place. That's the enemy working. Because remember, you need to have a proper revelation of who God is. He wants to convict you, but he does not condemn you. So how can we be different? How can we... All right, let's say we've taken the first step of recognition. We know who God is. We study him. We experience him through his word and through relationships. We're in church. We're in the word. We're, we're taking every opportunity we can to grow in our understanding of him. We've repented now. We've called out for God. We've admitted our need of him and our problems that we've faced. And now we're saying, Lord, to the best of my ability, I'm going to walk hand in hand with you and adjust my life. Looking at you the whole time, no matter what happens, even if I fall, I'm going to look at you. We've taken those two steps. But now we need to focus on the third step, and that's rhythm. In Nehemiah, the very end of chapter 9, going into chapter 10, we see how the people of God, now after the recognition and after the repentance, now develop a rhythm of life that is a promise of obedience. And the word there biblically is a covenant. And it's so much deeper of a promise than, than we give it credit for today in our own language. I'll talk about that in a second, but let me read for you Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38, which says this. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing. And our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are fixing their seals to it. So immediately following the prayer of repentance we see right here the people's willingness to say, God, we're going to make a covenant with you. And we are, to the best of our abilities, going to live in this covenant. Now, let me just briefly remind some of you know, but the idea in the ancient Near Eastern world of a covenant really literally had to do with a cutting of an agreement between two individuals. And without getting too graphic, animals were involved, and they would literally cut them in half, and they would place them to the right and to the left, and they would make almost this alleyway of split-in-half carcasses, and they would, two individuals, make an agreement with each other, and they would say to each other, if I fail to fulfill the agreement that I'm making with you, and they would walk down that covenant aisle, they would say, let it be as unto me as it has been done to these here. In other words, may I die. 
So these individuals are taking a very serious commitment, but it's all within the light of the gospel. Because understand, God has done nothing but covenant with his people. Do you understand that? God has said, I covenant to redeem you. I covenant to return and save you. So God is saying under penalty of death, which let me just ruin the ending for you, doesn't happen to God. You cannot lose under God. So, so the people, in light of this knowledge, say, God, now we covenant with you. To the best of our ability, we are going to fulfill these following rhythms, patterns, habitual practices. So that's where we jump to chapter 10, verses 30 through 40, which give us this third point. And that's this, the final step towards revival is to establish a rhythm of God first. The final step towards revival is to establish a rhythm of God first. In these verses, we see the people of God make a covenant, a commitment of solidarity, of oneness, saying as a people, we're going to hold each other accountable in the presence of all that we are going to fulfill the following rhythms. And this is great because here we see a community of believers, both wealthy and those who are impoverished or of humble means, to pick up a mantle of responsibility to say that none of us are disqualified from the need of ensuring that we fulfill this covenant. So let's break this down. Verse 30, we see first and foremost, for, first and foremost a rhythm of purity. Verse 30 says this, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or to take their daughters for our sons. Now, applicably, that's a little bit difficult for us today because we're not, I don't know, maybe there's some of you of Jewish heritage in here. We're not all Jewish. I'm, I'm a Gentile, but I'm welcomed into the family of God because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So we read an ancient text like this and we have to make an application to us in the 21st century. So, I believe that this encapsulates the entirety of purity. Because listen, we live in a society and a day and an age where purity is no longer seen as something that is righteous and something that ought to be protected and as innocent and as beautiful and as saved. Listen, I said it this way once, and I want to share it with you again. Purity is not a preference. It's a purpose. It's, it's not something that we ought to say, you know, I, I can choose to be pure or not sexually. No, God says, I have given this to you as a purpose because I have so much for you that I want to give you that you are going to have squandered, taken from you by habitually living in a lifestyle of sin that you think is okay whether you choose it or not. So if you're here and you are not pure, understand that there is no sin too great for God. God does not turn his back on you. He loves you. He restores you daily. But understand, it's a purpose. It's something for you to walk in today, now. Because you don't want to allow anything to keep you from walking hand in hand with God and focusing on the goal that he set before you, and that's heaven, word, and Christ Jesus. But if you think that purity is a preference, then you're going to say, all right, God, I, I'm going to go back for a little while. You just hold up right there. God's like, you don't know what you're going back to. You don't know the pain that you're about to experience in that season and, and the hurt and the turmoil and the betrayal that you're about to experience. So I know that it can be tempting and wooing and sweet and enjoyable in the moment, but it's going to break you if you do it outside of the pattern that I've set for you. It's good. Don't make it bad. The second rhythm that we see is a rhythm of rest. Verse 31 says this, When the neighboring people bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we'll forego, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. So here we see this rhythm of rest, but specifically, I think it's important to point out, we see a rhythm of rest for self, but also for others. See, I, 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 I'll give you this example. Personally, for my wife and I, 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 I certainly have the mindset that never turns off, and you, maybe you'll label me as a workaholic, um, 
because I just can't seem to turn this off and constantly focus on, which at times can be a great thing for the ministry as a pastor, but at other times can be extremely detrimental to myself and to my wife. And so my wife, this isn't a new thing. We've been kind of trying to find a rhythm for a while, but she finally said, we need to just take a day and we can't even, we can't even entertain the thought of talking about good things, ministry things, can't even entertain the thought because it's just, it's too much. So I thank God for, for that. And so every Tuesday, that's what we do. That, that's, that's our Sabbath. For me, I would love Sunday to be my Sabbath. It's not. I love you, but I get up here and I preach, and I get hungry, and I get tired, and I go home and take a three-hour nap. Yes, I, I, I sleep. So who knows what's going to happen when we go to two services. Uh, so I need a day, and, but more, not just me, my wife needs a day. Because she's got to be able to take a break from that. So if you're here and you're a part of a family, you need to understand there's a day. It doesn't need to be traditionally. I think it's best when it's at the end of a week. Traditionally for Jews, Sabbath went from Friday night up into Sunday. But Saturday night. Uh, but you know, I know work schedules are crazy. I know they're different. I know that the retail world, if you work in that, kind of forces you to work weekends. I get it. So I'm not here to say, well, if you don't take your Saturday or your Sunday, you're a sinner. I'm not saying that. But what the Word of God does say is that you must value rest because God himself instituted that himself through his act of work in the creation of the world. So if God says, I'm taking a day, you need to learn to take a day. Because in those moments of utter exhaustion, we are then led once back maybe to a place of impurity. Because God is saying, this is a necessary rhythm for you. I know it's hard, but turn this off. Hands in the pocket. Feet up. Whatever you want to do. I don't know. That's me. I go to my recliner. Establish a rhythm of rest. Third is this. This is kind of where we're going to land the plane, at least in regards to this third point. Next, we see a rhythm of giving. I got to read for you this chunk of scripture. It's profound. I never read it the way that I did in light of preparing for this sermon series and this sermon. Verse 32 through 39, they say this. I love these first few words. This is the people of God. This is everybody. This is not just a handful. This is everybody. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God. All right, that's one. I grew up in the church, and I never even knew that verse was there. I was like, what? A third of a shekel? Let's keep going. For the bread set out of the t- on the table, the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbath, at the new moon feasts and the appointed feasts, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel and for all the duties of the house of our God. So really quickly, understand, all of those had to do with the, the storehouses of the people from their animals to their produce to their grains. And they were committing to saying, we're going to give so that sacrifices and proper worship of God can continue on. We're going to give out of what we have. The rich and the poor, we're going to give. We assume responsibility. As it is also written in the law, we will bring, listen, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, of our herds and of our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there. That's not sacrificial, sacrificing children. Don't read that. That's not what that's saying. It's saying, I give the first because the first was always the best. Think about it. If you were trying to continue your heritage as a family so that your lineage would go on, you needed a boy. And your firstborn was the one because he was the first one, the the answer to a prayer of saying, God, let my family lineage carry on. And they were saying, you go and you commit him to God because he's God's first. And may he understand that. You do the same with your cattle. You can barely make ends meet. And finally, you were able for your sickly cow or whatever it might have been to give birth so that you can continue to have sustenance for your family and to work your fields and your crops can be developed. You go and you give it to the Lord. That one was literal. That one was sacrificial. That's insane to think about. This is my livelihood. Give it to God. Give it to him and he's going to provide the rest. Keep going, verse 37. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain meal, of the fruit of all of our trees, and of our new wine and olive oil. Man, even the olive oil. Man, I got to make sure my chicken doesn't burn. I got to make sure I got something to grease the pan. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes. And the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of God, to the storerooms of the treasury, 
The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, and olive oil to the storerooms where the articles for the sanctuary and for the ministers and for the ministering priests, the gatekeepers, and the musicians where they're also kept. That was a lot right there, I know. But I wanted you to read it because I want you to underline it if you want to go back and reread it. Understand, the people assume responsibility for ensuring that all of the body of Christ is ministered to. So every time, listen to me, this is important. Every time you give, talking about money right here, or anything but specifically money, whenever you give that, you ensure that everybody in this room is cared for. Everybody. It, it, it shouldn't come from one person. It should come from everybody. Whenever you give of your time, you're ensuring that you're serving everybody in this room, whether they're here or not. We are here to serve each other. And we all ought to assume responsibility for this. Now, here's the point that I want to make that I think is really important that I'm not calling anybody out for. I just think it's something that we might forget from time to time. Listen, we need to stop confusing tithing with generosity. Okay, so tithing in accordance with the word of God is a tenth of all that you have. So it's the idea of here's what I've produced. So for us today, that's a paycheck. It might not be uh, the total of our harvest that we brought in from the crops. It's the paycheck. Here's what I've produced from all of my hard work. Tithing is taking 10% of that, a tenth of it, and setting it aside back to God because ultimately it's an admission to God that, hey, God, you know what? I wouldn't even have this if it wasn't for your goodness. And so you gave me 100%. I can at least give you 10% back. Not because God needs it. Listen to me. God doesn't need anything from us. But it's so that we can continue to say, you know what, God, I am not beholden to this. This doesn't rule me. This doesn't give me ultimate satisfaction. You do. And so I'm going to put my money where my mouth is, literally, and say, God, here you go. Ten back to you without question. But that's just one aspect of it. There's so much more that's here. Now, here's the problem that I think we as the church face. We look at specifically tithing as, you know, I'm a generous person. It's, again, it it's, it's, has nothing to do with generosity, tithing here. Offerings do, going above and beyond, going out of your way to help people outside of your tithe when you see a brother or a sister in Christ or just a random person, a homeless person, whoever, they get a mom at the grocery store that lost her pocketbook or can't pay the bills. Say, so, you know, I got you. That's generosity. But tithing is not generosity, and I think we, we make it a a preferable option or maybe sometimes an unpreferable option based on how much we brought in that month and saying, you know what, I, I don't need to. I was good last month. The reality is, no, it's, it's a rhythm. It's not for anybody to look at you and say, oh, look at you. You didn't give. I'm not going to do that to you. I don't even know. I, I, I have no desire to know what each and every one of you get, con- contribute. I have no desire for that. That's between you and God and our board. Um, but they hold each other accountable. I don't want to know that. Because that's not why I'm here. But I am here to tell you the importance of tithing. It's a rhythm. It's a rhythm of giving. It's something that we need to institute because it's going to help us on that journey stay locked in with God because we don't need to turn back and say, but God, I need to go because right now I can't afford to. He's like, no, 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 no. I got you. Stay with me. Stay with me. That's what that tenth is doing. I know it sounds crazy, but it's true. It keeps you locked in with God. He is your sufficiency. He's your strength. All right. That's revival. In a nutshell, that's, that's, that's how we can experience it. But here's where I want to land the plane. Why do we, in our relationship with God, once we've been faithful, we're fulfilling the plan and the purpose that he has for us, and then adopt rhythms that are in accordance with his word, why do we lapse? Why do we, in spite of the best season that, hey, I've been living this long, I've gone this days without you fill in the blank. I've been so good. But then today, of all days, I lapsed. Why? This is not all conclusive, but here's a point that I'm going to make that I truly believe is very close to all-inclusive. Ready? We talked about the wall, 
and we talk about how the wall throughout the book of Nehemiah represented preservation of holiness. Don't miss that. It's important because here it is. The preservation of purity must never become the preservation of preference. Let me explain to you what I mean by there. You all know the story of David, King David in the Bible and Solomon. If you don't, it's okay. We have King David who was described as a man after God's own heart in the Old Testament. He was a shepherd boy. He was the youngest. He was the least. And yet God anointed him to be the king that did unbelievable things for the nation of Israel. He's the one who slayed the giant. He he was a great man used by God. And he made some mistakes. Absolutely, he made some mistakes. And that's important to understand. David made some pretty big mistakes and had to pay the consequences for them. But he continued to, listen, repent and turn back to God. And he would say, God, in spite of me, in spite of my imperfections and my lapses, in spite of them, you are still God. You love me and your loving kindness never ceases. Your mercy never, never fails. Thank you, God. That was David, okay? David specifically wanted to build the temple where the people would worship God and have a centrality of the presence of God. But God says, no, David, that's not for you to do. Specifically says, you are a man of war. You have blood on your hands. And it was something that was necessary that God used David in, but he said, it's not a part of your call to build a temple. No, your son is going to. And then specifically his son Solomon, who we understand as the richest and wisest king, wisest king who ever lived, so wise that nations, foreign pagan nations from all around the world would want to come and see this Israelite king to receive wisdom and advice from him. And listen, Solomon didn't have to lift a finger for all that he was able to enjoy. His dad did it. David conquested the land. It said Solomon never saw war. All of his days, he never saw war. He never had to. But he was able to enjoy it because of the faithfulness of his father. And then because of initially Solomon's continuing of that faithfulness. So we see a preservation of the kingdom. We see a building up of the kingdom because it was kept pure. Not because of a lack of mistake, but because of an abundance of repentance and understanding of, hey God, you're the answer to my insecurities, you're the answer to my insufficiencies. That's what it was, and it's built up. Solomon then, living in that preservation, decides no longer that that form of preservation ought to be to continue to feed purity and holiness. And then he takes for granted the security of the goodness of God and moves outside to a place of preference and says, I can enjoy the benefits of what is given me, but I'm going to start living where I ought not to. And it's okay because God is good and I've, I've, I've never had to see war. You know, I've never had to go through struggle, so nothing's going to change. I'm good. And we know he marries many, many foreign wives, which was traditional to do in that time because it helped you with foreign alliances. Yeah. Okay. Yes, I'm not denying that. But the dude had a problem. All right? Let's, let's just put it there. It was ridiculous, the harem of wives that he had and, and everything. And it was through that that an entire nation came to its knees. It was through the unwillingness of one man to preserve the integrity of purity and now relinquish that purpose for a preference that an entire nation was brought to its knees. And now the people of God here, the remnant, are picking up the pieces. God was there the whole way, but they lost sight of the integrity of their calling. Listen to me, church. The preservation that we have as a body, as a community, ought never to be skewed to twist from purity to I'll take it or I'll leave it. This is meant to serve me. I want it this way. So God, make it happen this way. Pastor, make it happen this way. Leader, make it happen this way. This is how I'm fed. This is how I like to serve God. We're we're traveling in really murky territory if we find ourselves in a place like that. It's not about preference. It's about, God, this is, this is a great season, or, God, this is a difficult season. But I'm going to re- maintain the purity of the preservation that you have provided for me and for my people. Yes. So, God, may I not take that for granted. Amen. That's revival, church. Yes. 
And I believe that we are going to experience revival in this place. I believe that every man, woman, and child, I don't care how young, how old, what season of life you're walking in, great or horrible, you are going to experience revival from the Lord if you recognize the revelation of who God is and how much he loves you, how gracious and how merciful he is towards you. And in that recognition, be willing to repent and say, God, in fact in light of who you are I admit to you my problems my faults my insecurities that the enemy is trying to use to keep me down God I admit my need for you and God I take your hand and I take step by step walking with you adopting rhythms that your word has shared with me that will help keep me on the path with you I believe that if we're a church that is ready to experience revival, then God is going to show up. Can I hear an amen if you believe that in this place? No matter how the cycle goes, it's a cycle. Listen, it doesn't stop. It's a cycle. You might lapse. You you might lapse. We all do. And you might say, but what happened? Understand the nature. I repented. I'm trying to get into a good rhythm, but then I lapse. Understand the nature of it. Go back to recognition. Don't allow the enemy to lie to you to believe that it's over. It's done. I'm disqualified. Go back to the start. It's to recognize that God is great and worthy to be praised, and he has not left you, nor will he forsake you. So live in that. That's revival. Here's how we're going to conclude. Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 39, the very last phrase of that verse says this. We will not neglect the house of our God. I've never heard a pastor preach that. And if you're a pastor watching this, I just gave you gold. You're always trying to find good verses to get your congregation to enjoy. That's right there. It's straight from Nehemiah. We will not this was at the conclusion of the covenant that they all wrote and signed in the presence of the people we will not neglect the house of our god today is a day that we have set for us to receive a special offering we've been talking about it for weeks in that card in the seat back in front of you again it shows where that we've set a goal for fifteen thousand dollars I don't care how crazy that is to some of you or to anybody. I'm not here to determine the outcome. I'm just here to trust the process of what God lays on my heart. And it's like, you know what, God? I I don't care. And really, I don't care if we don't even come close to that. I was obedient to you. I was obedient to you. I don't care. And maybe it's going to go above and beyond that. You know what? So what? Obedience to God is all that matters. We set that goal five weeks ago, and today is the day that we are going to receive that offering. So if you have prepared to give, there's that envelope that was on your chair. You can put it in there. You can go to tithely.com and give via uh, mobile banking or however you want to give. And when you do that, you can just give a specific uh, a comment for it saying, all right, this is for Legacy Builders offering. Um, But as we prepare to do that, I today want to know, are you willing to not neglect the house of our God? And look at me. The house of God is not four paneled walls. It's not a floor, it's not chairs, it's not carpet, it's not lights. This is just a building that we meet in. You want to know what the house of God is? You need to look all around this room at the breathing, living beings in this place. Are you going to give above and beyond to serve the people of this house? And understand, there's no condemnation if you didn't come prepared to give or if you're not going to give. That's not why we're here. But we are going to be real about giving to the Lord. We are going to be real about getting ready for what God is going to do. Understand that this money is supposed to be a springboard to help enhance the ministries here. We want to continue to make this place a safe environment. We've set up protocols that we're going to buy certain items to make this more sanitary in here. We already have done a number of things from the filtration system to cleaning to wiping things down. But we're going to do more to make sure everybody feels safe and, and, and welcome in this place because of all that's going on with this pandemic. We need, listen to me, we 
need to continue to increase our online presence, both audio and visual presence in this building for us to appreciate and for those watching online because that is our primary method of reach right now. There's a lot that we're limited to be able to do in our community, but, but listen to me, if we have such an online presence, there can be thousands of people that we're able to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we've got to make sure that it's something that they log on to that's not going to immediately turn them off. And literally, that can happen with bad sound equipment. It doesn't matter if I'm preaching the gospel. You might say, Pastor, that's all they need to hear. Yeah, it's great, but if they can't hear it because we have shoddy equipment, we got a problem. So we're just going to continue to enhance that. We're going to continue to set a foundation, listen to me, for the next generation. We have not opened up children's ministry yet for a number of reasons, but the primary reason right now is specifically because we need to make this a safe place and an unbelievable place where children want to be, where they go home and they say, Mommy and Daddy, do you have any idea how much I love today being in church, what I learned about Jesus and about God? Let me tell you what I learned about God. We need to enhance our facilities for that. That's just the bottom line because of COVID-19. That money is going to go towards that. Maybe not immediately, but we're going to ramp up for that in the new year. We need to replace our windows downstairs and one upstairs for the sake of safety. We have broken windows in this building. All of these things are going to add up, which is why we've set that goal. But it's not something that's unattainable. So here's what I want to ask you. If you're here today and you want to give financially through your time, through your talents today, or you're going to say, you know what, I'm not ready to give today, but I'm going to give as soon as I can, then here's what I want you to do. I want you, as the Lord lays it on your heart, to stand up, and I want you to read. Can we put that scripture back up on the screen? I want you to read Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 39. I'm not going to prompt you, and I know it's a little bit of like, oh man, you're going to ask me to stand up in front of all these people? It's okay, I do it all the time. That's all right, it makes you feel any better. I'm sweating like crazy. Uh, I'm I'm not nervous, but you can think I'm nervous. I just get into it. Just, just, I'm up here with you. But it's a form of saying, you know what? I'm unashamed, and I want everybody to know in the presence of my family. Because that's who we are here. We're a family that, hey, I've got you. I've got you, and I'm here for you. So that's what we're going to do. And as a, as a sign of leadership, I want to ask my wife first on our behalf, because I'm right up here. Would you stand up? And you can read that. Anybody else? We will not neglect the house of God. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, move. Jesus, move in this place. Jesus, move in this place. Thank you, Jesus. God, move in this place. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. 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 Thank you, Jesus. Move upon the families. Move upon the people, God. Move in their hearts. Move in their minds, Jesus. Root them strongly in you, Jesus. Strengthen them. Yes, Lord. Hallelujah. Yes, Jesus. Move in this moment. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. God, I worship you. God, I praise you. Lord, move in this place. If you're online and you're watching this, please understand that right in your home and you want to say that you, you are as much a part of the body of Christ, you are just as much a part of the body of Christ as everybody here. You can stand up right where you're at, at home. We're not, we're not here, we're not there with you, but we affirm you, we stand by your side, and you can say those verses too. You don't have to be here to say that. God, we come before you today. I thank you for everybody here, Lord, who has made a commitment not to neglect the house of our God. And Jesus, we know that that is the people of God. So, Lord, we're here for you. We're here to serve you. We're here to praise you, God. 
Lord, I thank you for what you've started in this place. I thank you for the seed of revival that has been planted. And now, Lord, I pray that it would be watered, God. And I pray that you would cause it to grow in Jesus' name. That it would grow beyond anything we could ask, seek, or imagine. That, Lord, we would be so overwhelmed by the goodness and the greatness of our God to move amongst his people. So, Lord, I thank you. I celebrate this day for all of the lives that are being changed and will be changed. So, Lord God, bless this offering. Bless this house. Bless this people. Would we be salt and light in this world to reach a people that so desperately needs to hear the message of Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior? God, I thank you now as we conclude this time. I'm going to ask that, that if, if our ushers aren't ready, if they can receive the offertories and, and go to the back on the way out, we're going to dismiss as soon as I conclude in prayer. And on the way out, you can drop your offering in. So if they can do that again, gentlemen, if you can go to the back, to the doors, and as people walk out, they can drop it. And that way we don't need to go once again through that. And on the way out, you can drop it in the offertory. I'm going to close in prayer. And please, if you can stay, I'm going to ask our uh, baptism candidates if they can get ready now. Uh, you can go to the restroom um, and take turns in the stalls, our men and women's stalls, uh, to prepare yourself if you need to change. And then go immediately outside, and we're going to have baptisms and then a time of fellowship. But let's close in prayer. Let's believe God that he's going to continue to move and be the great God that he is. Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for all that you've done and all that you're going to continue to do in the body of, of your believers here at Glad Tidings Assembly of God. I thank you, Jesus, for what's been started here today. Now, Lord, for those who are going to be baptized, Jesus, we celebrate that. We praise you for that, for the lives that have been changed and the lives that will continue to be changed. Thank you, God, for that. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, the God who will never leave us nor forsake us. Now, Lord, as we prepare to celebrate lives publicly declared, living and declaring for you, Jesus, I pray that you would bless them. pray that you would keep them, and I pray that you would allow it to be an example for all of us, Jesus. For all of us. So, God, thank you. I thank you for this day. I thank you for this time that we've been able to learn from your word. Now be with us as we celebrate and enjoy our fellowship together. We say all of these things in Jesus' mighty name and all of God's people said, amen, amen, amen. You could stand up on your feet. You can make your way outside. We're going to start in literally a few minutes.